Welcome to Galveston Unscripted. And at this point, I'm staring at him and I can tell that the towel has come off because he's been trying himself off with the towel. And I'm thinking, please, God, don't let me laugh. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Galveston Unscripted. I sat down with Maureen Patton and discussed the history and historic preservation of the Grand 1894 Opera House in Galveston, Texas. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, check it out on the podcast feed. It's either the episode above or below this one. She is such an amazing storyteller that I sat there for half an hour listening to every story, not really realizing that we weren't directly talking about history and historic preservation, which is what this podcast is really all about. But I decided to release this episode as bonus content or behind the scenes. Maureen discusses some of her favorite acts, performances, and performers. We also discuss what most of the performers say about the Grand Opera House before, during, or after their performances, and how fortunate we are to have the Grand Opera House in Galveston, Texas. This is Backstage with Maureen Patton, only on Galveston Unscripted. How do you go about finding your acts? I have a lot of people who send me stuff. And I look at all kinds of things and think about all kinds of things. Like I said, I find out who's the agent in charge and how do we do it. My story about Willie Nelson, would you rather see Willie Nelson at the rodeo or do you want to see him in a house of a thousand seats and see him up close and personal? And the So close you can almost smell him. Actually, I can sit in my office and I get a, an interesting smell wafting down here. So one of my, one of my wish lists was Hal Holbrook because I had seen Hal Holbrook when I was a freshman in college. When he first started doing Mark Twain, and as he said, it took a lot more time to do makeup then than it did in his later life. It took more time to take the makeup off. And I just so wanted, and I could not get the agency to really pay attention to me. I was frustrated. We were a small house, even though we'd be restored and we'd have a thousand seats. They didn't think we could handle the costs and all the rest of it. So lo and behold, I go to a conference in Corpus Christi. And a good friend of mine who ran the performing arts season there said, I've got Hal here tonight. He called him Hal. I called him Mr. Holbrook. And he said, I'm bringing him to the expo that we're doing for this conference. I'll make sure you get to meet him. I said, okay. Well, I was armed with all kinds of stuff because I knew he was going to be there. And I had a history and we weren't yet finished, but we were in the process of doing the restoration. And so I met him. He said, Hal, this is my friend Maureen Patton. And I promised her I would find you and make sure you, she got to meet you because she would just have my throat if I did. <laughs> he was really putting on the dog there for him. And he was just charming. He was just lovely. And so I went to see his performance that night. And he was at the big, it was about a 2,700-seat theater there on the water, like a civic, a civic house that they would do with the conventions and everything else. And afterwards, I went backstage with my friend so that I could see him and tell him thank you and all the rest. And I handed him my packet of information. And I said, Mr. Holbrook, I was sitting 12 rows behind the last row in my theater. And I said, our theater deserves for you to play it. And you deserve to play that theater because it would be so special. And I said, no seats farther than 70 feet from the stage. You'll have them all in the palm of your hand. And he thanked me and he was very gracious. And I got a call the next week from the agent saying, I don't know what you said to Hal, but he said to call you and make a date work. And I was just, I was bursting. I was so excited. <laughs> and so when he came, my stage manager and I picked him up from the airport. He had, he had, he and his stage manager 
And we'd borrowed my mother's great big Lincoln because it needed a big car because they had a trunk. And we were driving back and I I said, you sit in the back because I know you're tired. You're coming from another date. And so he and his stage manager sat in the back and I sat in the front. My stage manager drove and he almost fell asleep almost the minute we took off. And so his stage manager and I were visiting and he said, he said, you'd be amazed at how many times we've had little bitty cars pick us up at the airport and they've not read anything about what we've needed. Uh, I was sleeping in the back. And and so we were getting into Galveston, coming into Galveston and, and Bennett said, would it be in a position to drop the trunk at the theater so that we're not taking it to the hotel and then to the theater and they were going to be staying at the Tremont? I said, not at all. And from the back, I hear in these sonorous tones, Besides, you really want me to see your theater, don't you? <laughs> I said, Mr. Holbrook, I wasn't going to ask you to do that. He said, we'll just step in for a few minutes. An hour and a half later, he was still wandering around the theater. I was giving him the history of all the people who played here. And he knew the history of all these people. He may not have known our history but he knew the history of Sarah Bernhardt and John Barrymore and William Jennings Bryan being here and on. And so when we walked in and he stepped on the stage and he was looking out and talking and doing that. And then he said, Maureen, you stand here and you talk to me. And he started going all through the house and he was running up and down the stairs and, <laughs> and talking to me from every level in the theater. And we were holding a conversation. It sounded a little bit like Betty Hilton and Mark Legong. That's what he wanted to hear that. And, and so when he finished, he said, I want to know more about the theater. And I had a copy of the thesis that was done about our theater. And I had gotten a copy and brought it down with me. And I said, here, you take this and you just look at it at your leisure. And I said, and it's a copy, so you can keep it if you want it. The next morning, he called and he said, would you like me to do a PSA for you or something? And he just didn't do that kind of thing. It was just, he was really very focused on his performance. And I called together a really quick one. Vandy Anderson was here and Vandy taped it for me. And and I know exactly the seat he was sitting in. And he started out, we've got, we've actually got it on video on, on our website. And he said, I am sitting in what is perhaps the finest restoration of historic theater I've ever seen in this country, or maybe even in Europe. And he said, it is so such a prideful thing for this community to support this kind of restoration and bringing together the arts in your community. And it, was, it just blew me away. And we've used that in a lot of different, a lot of different ways. He ended up playing here about seven times. The last time was when he was turning 90, and we had a little birthday dinner for him. He received the Marquee Award from the League of Historic American Theaters, which is an award that we give to someone in the industry who has made a difference and who's played these theaters of ours. And we gave it to him when we had a conference in San Diego, and that's where he lives. So he was, he was right there. And he asked that I sit at the table with him for lunch because it was a luncheon. And so he had a couple of us who had presented him for years. And and we were telling stories and laughing and just having such a good time. And I said, I've never seen anybody like Hal who keeps notes on everything. I have a letter that he wrote to me. He didn't write to me. He wrote to the president of the board of the Arts Council at 3 o'clock in the morning after his show. And it's framed and it's hanging on the wall. 
And and he just took notes of everything. It was just like this sponge that just wanted to soak up everything. And his book, if you ever have a chance to read it, his book is like that. It's so thorough. And and I was saying, I just love it. I said, Hal has notes about everything he does and he keeps track of all these things. I said, he just boggles the mind and he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out this sheaf of notes <laughs> and all of us just broke into hysterics. And he said, I'm afraid that's right. And so then when they presented him with the award and he got up to speak, he started listing things and he was listing performers. And then he said, all of these people have performed at the Grand 1894 Opera House in Galveston and all of your theaters, probably. He said, I know that because I've read the history of that theater. And then he broke into a short course of Galveston, oh, Galveston. And everybody said, okay, did you get him to do that? And I said, no, I did not. I had no idea it was going to mention Galveston. But such a friendship, such a wonderful friendship. And when Kenny Rogers was filming Gambler 5 here and Dixie Carter was in it, and of course they were married, she came to find me. She said, Hal told me I had to come find you because it was important that I meet you. And, that, and she was a delight. Uh, and then we have a story that everybody who knows this story, and I'm talking stories that tell them, tell them the naked man story. And then, of course, I have to tell the naked man. You got to tell the naked man. And story. I think it's okay on a podcast, of course. And we had the Flying Karamazov Brothers, and the theater was still not not finished, and so we still had the slip covers and all the rest of it. And I had seen them, I'd seen what they could do, and I just loved them. And they were just loony. They're not Russian. They're not brothers, but they all look Russian and they all these beards and this hair and a lot of them look alike, but they're, so they're the flying Karamazov brothers. So they're jugglers, but they're so much more than jugglers because they're musicians and they would do juggling where they were actually doing instruments. It's crazy, crazy stuff. So they came the first time they came, they arrived in Galveston in a psychedelic bus and they had chickens and cats and dogs. And I swear to you, I think there was a goat in there. And and all of that descended into our dressing rooms, which was our sort of our makeshift dressing rooms at the time. They had wives and girlfriends. I don't know what all, but delightful. So they started their show. And one of my good friends came up to me at the intermission and she said, my husband's in charge of the International Port C Conference next year. Do you think you could get them to come back? Because that would make a wonderful show for everybody to see. And I said, well, I'll ask them. I'm willing to ask anything. And so the show was a huge hit. People just loved it. And they and they are just so entertaining. So after the show, I went backstage. And at this time, we had basically a couple of really large dressing rooms. We didn't have individual ones or anything downstairs. And so I went down there, and there were the kids, the little kids and the chickens, and the, all the animals were there, and the wives and whatever. And I said, I want to talk to, I want to talk to Andre about coming back next year. There's a special conference coming in. So he's in the shower. So he'll be out in a minute and just wait for me. And you can talk to him. I'm sure they would love it because they've had a great time. We've all had such a good time. So Andre comes out of the shower with a towel wrapped around him. And she said, Maureen wants to talk to you about coming back next year. And he said, really? We'd love it. We've had a great time. And I said, it's a conference and they're going to buy out one of the shows. So I do two shows and you got one there and one there. And at this point, I'm staring at him and I can tell that the towel has come off because he's him trying himself off with the towel. And I'm thinking, please, God, don't let me laugh and just let me stay with 
direct eye contact. So we keep talking and we decide that, yeah, he's going to let me know what dates they have. They have those dates available. Said, know the dates. And I always end the story saying, and we didn't shake hands on the deal. So I walked out, got my back to him as soon as I could. <laughs> and got up to the stage and my stage manager's up there and I got to the stage and absolutely collapsed. I was laughing so hard. And he said, what in the world is wrong? I said, well, I just struck a deal with a naked man. And it's not something I've ever done before. <laughs> oh, my God. So he just walked out with a towel and the towel fell oh, yeah. down? Oh, I didn't fall down. He took oh, it down because he, he was drying himself off. He was very determined. I got to go see them in Seattle a few years later. And we got to see him afterwards because it was a presenter's conference and, and had a good time there. And then they would appear at my major booking conference in New York and they would be in a booth with whoever the agent was who was representing them. And finally, one day I got, I said, okay, I have to share this. And I went up to her, I said, I've got to tell you the story that I, you were in my favorite story that I tell. Everybody wants to hear this story. And I related the story and he just roared. He said, I'm just so proud. Oh my God. <laughs> then we had a tour group come back, come by here. And it was a fairly small group, but they were going through and we took them into the star dressing room at the time. We had a lot of photos on the walls. One of the photos was of the Karamazovs. And I was telling the story. And one of the men in the group said, that was my son. <laughs> oh my God. He got the biggest kick. He became the most famous person in a tour group. And I've never had another story quite like that, but I've got a lot of stories, but, and they're all just fun. And people ask me all the time, how many divas do you, have you had? Uh, you know, how much trouble do you have with people? I had one friend after every show or in the intermission. Okay, how are they really backstage? Always wanted to know. Wanted some dirt. That's really yeah. Fun. And I said, I can count on one hand the number of people who've given me any grief and have fingers left over. I said, that's not what it's about. They come here to do a job. This is their life. They want it to be perfect because they want the people backstage to know what they're doing. So they've got the chance to do the best show possible. They want you to be ready for them and they want you to deliver an audience. That's what it really is all about. And I said, so it just doesn't happen. And in fact, when they first walk out there, when they come in and they look at the stage, they're just yeah, in awe. It's almost overwhelming. Yeah. When I walked out there today, uh, I just was like, oh my God. Like, cause I'd never been to the third floor. That vantage point. And then I had been on the stage before, but never with the curtain opened up and be yeah. able to walk all the way back and see the whole thing. And yeah. it's fascinating. It, it really is. It's Harry overwhelming. Bill. Harry Belafonte played here, and I was so happy that he was going to play here. And um, and the, his band was on stage, and I was standing at the back of the theater. And a lot of times I would do that when somebody first came in, because I always wanted to hear the unsolicited response to seeing the theater. And he walked in facing the band, so his back was to the auditorium, and he was saying something to them. And he turned around, and he just stopped. And he said, God. What a jewel, because he had never seen it before. And at that point, I walked forward, introduced myself, and he said, the only thing I knew about Galveston is that you have hurricanes here. I said, we have a lot more than that. And, and then he talked about it, and that's the other thing. Once they've seen it, then at some point during their performance, unless it's a play where they can't do that and break character, they will talk about what it means to be there. James Earl Jones came and just did the, these one-man shows like that. And a lot of those were a conversation with or something like that. James Earl Jones, it was his favorite poetry and his 
the speeches that he loved most. I shared the stage with him. I don't mean to cut you off. I didn't, I didn't realize till a couple of years ago he played Jack Johnson. Oh, yes. I had no idea. Oh, I found it on YouTube and watched the oh, whole movie. And he was the original character. He was the original star of Fences on Broadway. I wanted him so badly to be here because I, I would see everything he did on Broadway. When they arrived and they said, oh, I forgot to tell you. When you do the Q&A, we need somebody to sit on the stage with him because he's a little hard of hearing and you can't hear the people very well. So we'll do it with cards. Somebody needs to do that. And I said, well, that's going to be me. Yes. A, it's my decision. <laughs> B, I'm a performer and I'm comfortable out there yeah. and I won't just go googly eyed even though I want to. And he doesn't do <laughs> Darth Vader to an audience. He said, I promised Steven Spielberg I wouldn't Never Darth do Darth Vader yeah. and he wouldn't do any play. Plays to, and act in them or something yeah. like that. It's funny. And he won't do it. He absolutely that's, well, won't that's, do it. And so I, after he did all of the poetry reading, everything else, at intermission, I went out there and then he and I shared the stage and did that. I have gone to see him backstage in New York several times. And one one of the times he said, when he saw me coming, they said, he's ready. He can go back and see him. And he said, come here. I want you to meet some people. And he had my postcard with him the of the theater. This is the theater I was telling you about. This is the woman who runs it. And he was just exclaiming about the theater. And you know what that does to a person who is in my position. And you have a Hal Holbrook or a James Earl Jones. And by the way, they've just named, they've renamed a Broadway theater in his name. It's the theater where he played. It's the theater, I think, where he did Fences on Broadway. So, you know, you it's all part of the fabric of what, makes this place special because the best ambassadors for Galveston are those people who've been on that stage and they go near and far and they talk about Galveston. Exactly. They talk about how they're treated at the hotel. They talk about what the audience was like. Hal Holbrook told me that after every show, and I found this out the night of his first show here, and he said, Bennett and I keep a diary of every show we do together and we do it independent of each other. And it goes from what the weather was like what the theater was like, what the preparation was like, what the backstage was like, what the audience was like, on and on, until we have a whole, and what pieces I did, because he has long lists of pieces that he does as Mark Twain, and he picks and chooses, and he makes sure that if he goes back to a theater, he's doing different ones. He said, some I do at everyone, because they're the ones that people want to hear. And then they would tell us stories of when they'd gone. He said, it's rare that we get to have dinner in a restaurant after the show. He said, we've eaten in so many all-night diners because nobody wants to stay open for us. And I had made arrangements with the restaurant on the Strand. It was called La Paisan, and we loved it, and the food was out of this world. And this was, keep in mind, this was in 86. So there weren't a whole lot of places, certainly not on post office. And I kept calling them from the stage saying, all right, he's almost ready. We're going we're gonna to get there. Please, please don't shut the door, please. Because it took him so long to take his makeup off because it's extensive makeup. So we got there and he and Bennett were just charmed. And they said, you have no idea what this meal means because they don't eat before the show. He wanted soup and milk for the, for the show. He wants a good meal. And, and he would just share experience about the person who picked him up in the little bitty car, that kind of a thing. And that's what precipitated the letter that he wrote later that night about the treatment he received here. So it's an immediate tie. It's a, just immediate connection. And I told somebody when I first took the job and they were saying, are you sure you want to do that? And because they thought the organization was not strong enough and they had problems in the earlier years. And I said, I figure that 
I can bring something unique to the table because I did grow up here. And because I am an artist, I can appreciate both sides of the footlights. And that may make a difference. And there may be a better sense of trust. And that, so that was a really important thing. And it's the same, it's the same relationship that we develop with the artists who come. I was due to finally, after many years, I was due to have It's a Pearlman play here. And so I am scheduled for October of 2008. We all know what happened. Yes. And I was doing it in concert with the Texas A&M, my friend who runs the performing arts series there. So my husband and I drove to A&M to hear him there. And Ann took me backstage to see Mr. Perlman. And I had with me a program that he had done here years before. It was in the 70s. And he was just frankly a kid. He played a concert for the old civic music at Ball High School. And someone reminded me later, said, do you remember it stormed so badly that a lot of the audience didn't show up? He played to a handful of us. It was mesmerizing. This young man just taking that violin and doing, making it speak. And, and I found the copy of the program that we had. And a friend who was one of the major volunteers of the civic music told me what they paid him, which was laughable. So Anne took me backstage and she said, Mr. Perlman, this is my good friend Maureen Patton who runs the Grand Opera House in Galveston. And he looked at me, he pointed his finger and said, we're going to make a date work for you. And he came that spring after we reopened and just, it meant so much to me. And he was the first person to use our wheel of Vader. I was determined that all of backstage would be accessible, just like front of house. And we had that, especially. And we had to do it after Ike. It sat on a loading dock somewhere because it couldn't get down here. And, and then he came back another time. He's a delight. He is funny. He's an amazing, he's an amazing man. And and he wanted to eat at Guido's. Or he wanted food from Guido's. Oh, and, and Guido's. Guido's, yes. Yeah. It's Guido's. And it was so cute. That's and, so funny. And I said, I have a menu and you can choose anything you want and they'll deliver it to you. And so he said, do they have good shrimp? And he would say it just like that, shrimp. And, and then laugh. And I said, oh, yeah. And he's looking and he said, you think I could have the garlic shrimp? said, Mr. Perlman, you're far enough from the audience, it won't matter. It won't and matter. And I don't even think that it would matter if they could smell the garlic. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And he just, what an absolute delight. And we had Marilyn Horn here, who was, of course, a very famous diva with the Metropolitan Opera. And we had a diva who lived here in town, whose name was Dorothy Dow. And she sang all over the world with symphony orchestras, did opera, all the rest. A really an amazing woman who had a career. And she and I were friends. She always wanted me to sing for her, and I never did. Sorry, didn't get around to that. She sang an opera called Wozzeck. It's probably the hardest opera in the world because it's totally atonal. And the notes are still the place. Marilyn Horn, Horn had sung Wozzeck. And so I told Dorothy, I said, you're going to be my guest to come to this. And I said, she's going to do a meet and greet on stage and you're going to meet her. I want these two women who both did this opera that is impossible to sing to to see each other. And they were sitting there and Marilyn Horn came over, brought her over to meet Dorothy. 
And I said, you're the only two people I know and can even imagine having sung Wozzeck. Oh, my and, God. And Marilyn Horn said to Dorothy, wasn't that the hardest thing in the world you ever had to do? She said, oh, my, yes. And then they sat there on the stage like two old friends. It just did my heart such good, and it meant the world to Dorothy. And 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 it was just something that I could give to her. And she would come and always have a good time. That's what I wanted to ask you next are the because place has been here for 127 years. What are the biggest name acts that have played here? If you had to name the top 10 biggest names, I know you you have a worldwide group of performers that have come here. So what would you say, I guess, some of the top ones are? That's almost as hard as saying what's my favorite I know. performer. I know. I, it really is. Because, for instance, in classical music, you've got... True, you've true. You've got Perlman. You've got Jean-Pierre Ron Paul, Sir James Galway, Joshua Bell. You just you keep going down the list. And you have Marilyn Horn. We had Samuel Ramey, who's an operatic bass. And, and I can't remember the opera soprano who sang with him, which is horrifying. On my part, it'll pop into my brain and it'll all of a sudden I'll just say that. It's okay, I'll add it in uh, later. So you, you have those people, you have the kind of international stars that are ballet companies from over overseas. You have the Romeros who played here early on and they're going to play this season. When Pepe Romero was the kid of the group and now he's one of the senior members of the group and it's the, the family of guitarists. We've had the Ballet Folklorico de Mexico. We have had, the list just goes it on. It goes and on, on and on. And we had, obviously, Harry Belafonte. We had Garrison Keeler, And I booked Garrison Keeler here as a solo speaker. So I said, okay, I'm going to book, I'm going to book him. And I did. And he came and he was telling, he was doing, telling his stories, doing whatever. But he came in and I came in from backstage and he was standing on the stage. He's a huge man. He's really a big guy. And he was just standing there and he was looking around. Just kept looking around. And so I waited a little bit of time, and then I walked out there and introduced myself. And he said, you have a lovely, this is a lovely theater. And I said, Mr. Keeler, I said, one of the things on my wish list was to get Prairie Home down here because it just feels so right. And I had seen it in New York at the smaller theater. And he said, it's an interesting idea. The next week, I get a call. I don't think this can work, but Garrison says I should call you and see and see what this is about. And I said, I think it really can work, and let's just talk about it. They had the best time. This is one of the most fun times they've ever had because we fed them like royalty. Farley girls fed them. If oh, you yeah. hear from yeah, Farley yeah. girls, oh, my gosh, they yeah. took care of them. And the show, and they asked for my help in identifying a couple of people local who might participate. One was Shrub Kempner and the other was Gerald Sullivan. And they were on that stage with him. And Gerald was taller than Garrison Keeler. And here's this big old text. And of course, he had his cowboy hat on. And there's Shrub. It was amazing. I was getting calls from people all over the country. said, oh, my gosh, I heard your place. Your place was on Prairie Home. And what fun that was. But sometimes you just do things because you don't know. And you, you don't. So I'm a huge fan of Larry Gatlin. I've been for a long time, and I couldn't wait to get him and the brothers here. And the first time they came, and this was after we had restored the theater, and I told him, I said, I know that there's a song that you don't do anymore. His father got very angry with him because the chorus goes, will there be Mogan David in heaven? And if there ain't, who the hell wants to go? And his father really felt like that was a very sacrilegious kind of a thing to be singing about. I loved it because I was living it. And so I explained that to Larry, 
And I said, would you just do that for me? It will, it will mean so much to me. So he announced to the audience that he, they were going to do this song. And he said, Maureen asked us to do this and she signs the check. So we're going to do it. And I love that song. I still love the song. For historic resources or more information, check out the episode description.